Good morning. Let's open our Bibles where Paul was reading for us. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I've entitled this message, Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. Uh, For those of you that want to do an in-depth study on the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, if you go to our website, I think there's actually 60 messages. It was done in 2010, so it's a little outdated because of so many things have happened prophetically since, since that time. But uh, you can uh, go through, the, the series is called Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. It's, it's a, my study on Daniel tied in with the book of Revelation. So let's pick it up in verse 1, chapter 9. And then he called out my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been, to the thresh floor of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill, and do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Let's turn back to, for background, uh, chapter 8, and um, the first four verses of chapter 8 tells us that um, Ezekiel is ministering in Babylon, but what the Lord does in chapter 8, in the first four verses, is that um, it says in verse 2 that Ezekiel looked and there was a likeness of the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward fire and from his waist and upward like the appearance of the brightness and the color was of amber. And he stretched out the form of a hand and he took me by a lock of my hair and the spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven And he brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the north door of the gate, the inner court, where the seat and the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So, um, at this point, what the Lord does is he actually removes him from where he is in Ezekiel, actually takes him in the spirit uh, to uh, Jerusalem, And at this time, most of the people have not left Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, The false prophets continue to assure the people that everything was uh, going to be all right, and that the captives would be returning from Babylon soon. Well, that's going on. Jeremiah, who's in Jerusalem, was saying that the captivity was going to last for 70 years, uh, but they paid absolutely no attention to Jeremiah. They liked the false prophets, 
because their message sounded better and was very upbeat and positive. So we have this tug of war going on between the false prophets, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. And now the Lord actually sends an angel uh, to, um, to Babylon, and he tells them to mark those who are grieved. Uh, the sin that was taking place was so grievous that there were actually godly people there, and the Lord says, I want you to find them. And the ones that are going, can it get any worse than it possibly is? He says, I want you to put a mark and mark those men. And everybody who doesn't have a mark, I don't want you to have any mercy. I don't want to see any pity. I want them all destroyed and killed because it had gotten that bad. Um, if you look at verses five and six, I'm going to go through chapter eight rather quickly uh, because if we don't do that, you're not going to see how bad it really is at this time and why the Lord would order such a, a great judgment against the people. So we have this image of jealousy in verse five. Then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes and look towards the north. And so I lifted my eyes towards the north And there north of the altar was the image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abomination that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again and you will see even greater abominations. Now, nine and 10 go together. And what, I don't know if you picked up when we were reading our text, but it said that the glory of the Lord rose up from the cherubim. That means that the presence of God was still in the Holy of Holies, resting above what we call the mercy seat or the Ark of the Covenant, but he's on his way out. And when we get to chapter 10, you're gonna see the Lord and the Shekinah glory of the Lord leaving over the Mount of Olives. What we're doing here is he's starting to make the move leave but before he does we have basically um, the Lord is not going to take anymore they cross the they cross the line and they actually what this image of jealousy is um, it doesn't get any more descriptive of that except it's an idol and it's breaking the first two of the ten commandments the first one thou shalt have no other gods before me And a second one, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. And here it was, right at the entrance to the sanctuary. The brazen altar that the the men were standing around, that would have been outside. It was highly decorated by Solomon. It had oxen that actually were the the pedestals that that held it up. Verses 7 through 12, um, the reason we know that this isn't a vision or or, um, Ezekiel actually being there, um, Ezekiel is there, we know that because of verses 7 through 12. And um, he brought me to the door of the court and I looked and there was a hole in the wall and he said to be, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I 
dug into the wall, there was a door. So he's literally in um, Jerusalem. And then the Lord said to him, I want you to go in and see the wicked abominations and what, what they're doing there. And so I went and saw, and every sort of creeping things, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel were portrayed on all and around all of the walls. And there stood before me them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Now, this would have been the Sanhedrin. By the way, that's recently been reestablished in Israel in the last four years. Um, the, The 70 men have been appointed. To this day, they're back in existence. So this would have been the leaders and what they were involved in as far as their worship. And um, then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idol. So they had their own idols that they were worshiping. For they say, the Lord doesn't see. The Lord's forsaken the land. So it gets worse. Verses 13 and 14, it says they're weeping to Tammuz. As we got into this in more detail on um, Wednesday night, and I'll say it twice um, in case I might forget, but Tammuz is going to have a direct connection with the Roman Catholic holiday of Lent. Have you ever wondered where Lent came from and its roots? It comes from the worship of Tammuz. I'll try to connect some of the dots here this morning. That 40-day period before Easter that they call Lent actually has its original roots according to Hyssop, who's the authority in this matter with his expertise book. It's a classic, uh, The Two Babylons. But in verse 13, and then he said to me, turn again, and you're even going to see greater abominations there. And so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting and they were weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz um, was the Babylonian deity Dumzai, the god of spring vegetation. He would die in the fall, just like the leaves are right now, and, and in winter went down to the netherworld to be revived again uh, during the spring equinox, right about the time that we have uh, Easter. And so this pagan holiday, we find that um, they wept when he died, and then when spring came again, then there was rejoicing. So this was a period of time when it would have been the custom for the women to weep, and it goes back to the Babylonian worship. And so the 40 days practice is how Roman Catholics of Lent actually Christianized this pagan holiday. And that shouldn't surprise us because Easter is a pagan holiday. It's a spring equinox, just as Christmas is the beginning of the winter. And both um, uh, when Constantine came into power, he, he Christianized these pagan holidays. But I didn't know until going through the Bible this time that the roots of Lent are directly tied in with the worship of the god Tammuz. All right, and the last one is uh, verse 15, and this 
is where they now, he goes into the inner court at the door of the temple between the porch and the altar. And there were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord. And they were facing toward the east and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. The worship of um, the Egyptian god Ra is where they were uh, worshiping towards the, the Mount of Olives. One of the most uh, beautiful, don't mean to rub it in too much, but uh, we're going to be on the Dead Sea, and while we're down there, it's worth getting up early and watching the sunrise come over uh, the mountains of Jordan and um, shine down on the, on, the, on the Dead Sea. But this is the reason, if you go back to chapter 9, um, the reason for God's edict, and we read, um, if you go back to chapter 9, the result of Ezekiel seeing these things. It says, so it was while they were killing them, I was alone, I fell on my face and I cried out and said, oh Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel? And he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great and the land's full of bloodshed and a city is full of perversity. And they say the Lord has forsaken the land. No, the Lord is still in the temple. But he's leaving. And we'll get to that next week. Um, And as for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. And just then, the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you have commanded me. So as we look at um, this chapter here this morning, we find... Um, the reason for the judgment. And uh, what I would like to do this morning is take a look at the times and places where God has placed a mark on people. And to do that, we have to begin by going back to the book of Genesis chapter 4. Let me hear those pages turn. Genesis 4. Genesis 4, of course, Um, Adam and Eve and she conceived and and she had Cain and she had begotten a man from the Lord and uh, then she bore again and this time his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of Cain but Cain was a, a tiller of the ground and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and the Lord respected Abel's, but he did not respect Cain's. And there's a lot of people wondering, why didn't he? Um, I personally believe the, uh, it's a picture of Cain and the works of his own hands, rather than Abel, which would have been a blood offering, and that was the typology that the Lord was looking for. And Cain got ticked off. He was angry. We read in verse 5. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Sometimes you can just read body languages on people, on how they're doing. And this would have been a real easy one to read on Cain, because he was ticked off, and his, his countenance changed, and he's looking over at Abel, that um, uh, he's loved more than, more than Cain. 
And he was angry, and the Lord says, why is your countenance fallen? He says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. In other words, you should have control over your temper. And he did not. And now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and he took him out. He killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where's, where's your brother? He says, well, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? By the way, what's the answer to that question? Are you your brother's keeper? Answer, we most certainly are. And he said, uh, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand, And when you till the ground, it's no longer going to yield its strength to you. You're going to be a vagabond and a fugitive upon the earth. And and Cain said to the Lord, my my punishment is greater than what I can bear. I'll be found out, I'll be a fugitive, and they'll kill me. Um, And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And it says, the Lord set a mark. And here's the first place in the Bible where we have the Lord marking Cain and whatever the mark was, if anybody finds him, that this mark would deter that person from killing Cain. So uh, it was some sort of mark of of, uh, protection that was given to Cain and it's the first place in the scriptures that we have it. Now the second place where we actually find it happens to be in our text here, um, back in um, Ezekiel, so just flip back to Ezekiel really quick, and we find here that things were so bad that um, it caused weeping on Ezekiel's part, but those who were grieved and those who were um, upset. Um, It reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter three, where it actually says there's a time for this. There's a time to weep, and there is a time to mourn. And this is what was happening to some of the people, and those people were given marks. And when the death sentence was given, everybody was killed except those people who received the mark from, from the angel. Uh, It's here, I want to do just a little application because there's a reason I wanted to play Man in in Black. And um, because he'd like, I think one of his lines, I'd like to see rainbows every day and sunshine. I'd like to be happy. I'd like to have the joy of the Lord all the time. But this is what I really appreciate about God's word and going through it chapter by chapter. We have studies like this where we have to talk about being so grieved with what we see in our country that it needs to be shouted from the pulpit, from this one, from all of them, that there's things in this country that are just not right and it should affect us in the same way that it affected Ezekiel to a point where the people were sighing and groaning and the Lord says, mark that guy because what he's doing is right. And it's not a time, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to dance. But I'll tell you right now in our country, it's not that time. 
And um, I just, you know, I could go on forever with um, just how bad things are, but let me just state the obvious. PBS NewsHour, the case for starting sex education in kindergarten. I can't even imagine what my grandma and grandpa would think of such a title. Um, Now children as young as four are asked to choose what gender they are before they start school with the option of being something other than male or female. Are you kidding me? Children as young as four are being asked to choose what gender they are. Parents received letters asking them whether uh, their child preferred male or female. Uh, please, the letter said, please support your child's choice of gender uh, that they most identify with. One parent said, was so furious after receiving uh, the letter instructing them to help their four-year-old choose a gender before they start primary school. Well, if I had one, he wouldn't be going to kindergarten, period. And that would just be the end of that. Um, Switching gears, somebody asked me last week, he said, aren't you afraid to go to Israel? And I said, no, I'm afraid to go to Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Chicago's murder rate rose 72% in 2016. Shootings are up more than 88%. The city has seen 141 murders this year compared with 82 murders at the same point last year. Police reported 677 shootings this year compared with 359 at the same point last year. The Bible says in the last days, lawlessness would abound. Perilous times would come. Wasn't planning on sharing this, and I hope Seth doesn't get bothered by me sharing it, But Seth Waters, Bill Waters' son, pastors of Calvary Chapel up in UP, and he sent a text out because in the middle of the night, he had a break-in, and there was a guy losing it, and so he takes, he was packing, and he went out, and here's this guy standing in his living room, taunting him, and then he starts to run towards Seth, and Seth says, I want you to know, I'm holding you, I'm and the guy comes up to him, gets real close, and he says, shoot me, shoot me. And uh, his wife had already dialed 911, so they're actually wrestling. And fortunately, the officers got in the house, tased the guy, and um, Seth texted it to some of the people in the church, and, and we read it uh, this morning. Fortunately, the gun didn't go off, and um, everybody's okay. But we're, we're living in a time <laughs> where I know many a pastor who's packing. Um, the guy down in, uh, my good friend Charlie, down in um, Apache Junction. I, mean, I know I'm getting sidetracked here. Uh, but he has guys come in, and they have holsters on both sides. <laughs> they dress like cowboys. But, and I said, Charlie, do you pack? He says, I got one right underneath the pulpit. I'm not going to tell you if I do or I don't. <laughs> I'm going to leave you wonder about that one. No, actually, because of the times we live in, um, people are concerned about me. And I said, don't be concerned. And they said, why? Because there are people right now in our fellowship that are packing. And um, if anything weird would happen, they'd be taken care of, just so you know. Um, you guys, don't miss, okay? If that happens. <laughs> Lawlessness abounding. 
The Supreme Court of our country rules gay couple nationwide have a right to marriage as of last year. This is coming down from the highest order. Um, Babies aborted since Roe v. Wade as of yesterday, 58,586,256 innocent babies. There is a baby aborted every 20 seconds. If that doesn't cause you to grieve and, and sigh, I don't know what will, how hard hearted some people can be. So Ezekiel chapter nine, verse four, said I want you to mark them, Ezekiel. You mark those who are brokenhearted over this because that is the only human, natural human response that we should have when I read such things. I could go on and on, and you know I could, but I'll leave it with that. Switching gears completely, God has marked you. And for that, I need you to turn to the book of Corinthians, Second Corinthians, this morning. Chapter 1. Just as Cain was marked for protection, in 1 Corinthians chapter, verse, uh, verses one, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, the Lord says, Now he who established us with you in Christ has appointed us in God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a deposit. You have been sealed by the Lord. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, both chapter one and chapter four. Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 and 14, it says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So here, um, this is why I call it signed, sealed, and delivered. You guys have been sealed supernaturally by God's Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You're already purchased, but the Holy Spirit is, the Lord said, I'm, this is guaranteed that uh, you're saved and um, I'm gonna keep, keep there. Go to chapter four, verses 30 and, um, verses 30 and 32. The one that you've been sealed by, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit because Corinthians says, that, don't you realize that you're the temple of God and, and God himself actually dwells in you? So don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Notice again, by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be, be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgive one another just as God in Christ also forgave you. Now, even though we are sealed, yet what does that really mean, that we've been sealed? Well, first of all, there is no fellowship with light and darkness. Matter of fact, they can't coexist. You can't have it be totally dark and light at the same time. So the Lord says that in, when you're in the light, we're to walk in the light as he was in the light, 
uh, means that darkness can't be a part of it. But wait, let me notch that up and talk about demon possession. Because some people actually believe that a Christian can be demon possessed. I want to shout loud and clear, if you're a born again Christian, you cannot be demon possessed. Good place for it, amen. Having said that, um, you can be demon oppressed. The Bible clearly teaches. Uh, The example I would give is none other than the Apostle Paul. And I'm quoting verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, Lest I would be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, and then he describes it, a messenger of Satan. Now, do you think Paul is sealed with the Holy Spirit? Oh, yeah. His, he is called, his gift was an apostle, and he was one, I believe, of, of the 12. But he says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me with the intent to keep him humble. So Paul said, I want to sing God. And uh, sometimes we have things in our life that hassle us and buffet us, and we say, Lord, out, I want it gone. This isn't good. The Lord says, no, it is good, Paul, because I've, I've let this happen to you so that you don't get big-headed because I took you to heaven. And you saw things that you could write books and make a lot of money over. <laughs> and people do. And so even though we're, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, um, we still need to keep our shields up, our swords drawn, and uh, be ready to take on these fiery darts when they come. We're not to be passive. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Therefore take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, take the shield of faith, what for? That you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. How many times a day does he whisper in your ear to do some sin or some temptation? You're to take the shield of faith out and say, no. And take the helmet of salvation and the spirit, uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The most powerful weapon that we have is this book that you're holding in your laps this morning. It's your most valuable possession, and it should be treated as such. Good place for an amen. It is the most valuable thing we have. It is what, as we battle, we're in a war. And this is the only weapon that's offensive. The shield is, is uh, more for defense because of the fiery darts. Well, what's a fiery dart? Those accusations. What accusations? Revelation 12 says that our accuser, the accuser of the brethren, accuses them day and night uh, before the throne. And um, the good news is our defense attorney is right sitting on the right hand and saying, no, I marked that one, and he belongs to me. Hands off, devil. And we're not listening to any of those accusations, those fiery darts. Peter would tell us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. 
who has her sword, sword in the sheath, who doesn't have the, the, the shield of faith up. He's going and he's trying to uh, undermine your faith. And the bottom line is to get you to just quit and give up and uh, uh, go back to the old ways. And because we're getting away from this book and because the days are getting more evil, we're told in Hebrews, the more that you see these things taking place, that we're to be exhorting one another all the more, make sure you're in fellowship. One of the guys yesterday, we're, we're in Luke, and one of the verses that we read is Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum, which was his custom. And one of the guys says, I want this. I want Sunday morning to be my custom. I want men's prayer to be my custom. I want Wednesday night Bible study to be my custom. I want my daily devotions to be my custom. Do you have a custom? Jesus did. It was his custom to be in a synagogue uh, in, in um, Nazareth. I, I guess it was in Nazareth instead of Capernaum. So um, let's turn to the book of Revelation. And uh, I want you to know that you're going to receive a mark someday. I find this interesting. Very interesting. Revelation chapter three, chapters two and three are the seven letters to the seven churches. As you look at uh, verse 12, this would be written to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. And all seven letters, every seven letter has certain things in common. First of all, the title that Jesus uses for himself is different. And it usually is applicable to what he has to say to that particular church. For instance, the church of Smyrna was a suffering church and they were under great tribulation. So the title that the Lord uses for himself is, these things says the first and the last, the one who was dead and then came back to life. So he identifies with this church that was being martyred. He says, I was dead and now I'm alive. To the Church of Philadelphia, the, promise, uh, the promises are different for every church, but they apply to all the churches. Can I say that again so it's not misunderstood? Every church gets, gets a different promise, but the different promise is applicable to all seven of the churches. You with me? Okay. The promise here is, verse 12, he who overcomes, in other words, he who doesn't give up, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, He shall go out no more. And then he says, I will write on him, that's a mark, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, and from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So on you, somewhere, you're gonna have the Father's name. Jesus has a new name. And I said, Lord, what's up with with the new Jerusalem? And I figured it out. So when you're out on the farthest reaches of the universe in a galaxy, you get lost. You can go up to an angel, and the angel goes, reads your address right on your head, and he can tell you exactly how to get back home. You don't believe that? Oh, okay. And you'll have to come up with your own reason, I guess. But it clearly tells us one of the promises that the Lord has a new name, and he's going to write it on you. The Father's name is going to be written on you and even your home address, the New Jerusalem. 
Jesus said, I am. I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. And um, I think about that. And it's going to be everything that you ever loved about maybe in the place that you live. And um, you're going to go, Lord, this is exactly what I, uh, it's perfect for me. Now, I'm, that's my guess, but again, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> so we find here that the church is also marked. And um, let's go to chapter 7. We have another group of people being marked. After chapters 2 and 3, 4 and 5, we clearly find the church singing a new song. They're in heaven. And only the church can sing this song. So I believe before the seal judgments and the the beginning of the tribulation that the rapture has taken place. And right before the the judgments really begin to come, um, Revelation 7, let's look at the first three verses. It says, after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Now this is an important verse because it ties directly into Revelation chapter 11 where it talks about the two witnesses and the duration of time that they can bring judgments upon the earth. Now one of the judgments, it says it will not rain on the earth during the days of their ministry. In Revelation 2, it says their ministry lasts for 1,260 days. Here we go back to chapter 7, and before anything actually even begins, we have the wind stop blowing, which the water cycle is completely dependent upon. The evaporation system, the wind gathers it, collects it, dumps it down, and, um, but that's not going to be happening. Why? The Bible clearly tells us he's going to stop it. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And he cried out to a voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. In the same way that the seal protected those that were grieving in Ezekiel's time, so there is some sort of seal placed upon what we call the, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses where they're protected for the first three and a half years. And he said, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel and were sealed. Uh, gang, you can pull this one out when you have friends that are Jehovah Witnesses and take them to this verse and have them read it out loud. And ask him, who's he talking to? Do you, do you take the Bible literally? They'll tell you yes. And I say, fine. Um, it says Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Essachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Dan is not mentioned. Did you notice that? The tribe of Dan is not mentioned. Why? The tribe of Dan was the one responsible for bringing this idolatry into the land. And therefore, they're not evidently protected during this period of time. Now, having said that, we're in Ezekiel. 
And when we get to Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 1, it gives detailed locations of the land allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel. Guess who's number one? Dan is number one. What is that a picture of? That God is long-suffering, he's forgiving. He's just here. They're gonna be judged just like the people in Jerusalem because they were responsible, the northern 10 tribes, especially Jezebel and um, Ahab. But that was all part of, of the north. So here, again, we have this uh, marking where they're supernaturally protected and nobody can do anything until their, their ministry is up. All right. Um, let's go to one more. And I want you to turn, first of all, to chapter 14. There's another mark, probably the most famous mark in the Bible. If people don't know the book of Revelation, they know one thing, and that's 666. They know that much. You have people wearing 666, and they have no idea uh, what they're doing. Um, But here, in Revelation 14, first of all, this warning, uh, verse 9 and 10 of Revelation 14. It's the third angel followed them saying. Now the first angel preached the everlasting gospel. And then the second angel um, says Babylon has fallen, has fallen. The third angel in verse uh, nine says with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Simple question. Is that clear enough? I mean, if you just read it, is it clear, clearly understood what happens if you're alive and you don't heed this warning and you take the mark of the beast, knowing that you're doing so of your own free will, what are the consequences? Eternal damnation and torment. I mean, it's that clear. So this is, this is one of the times I need to name names because Jimmy DeYoung and John MacArthur say you can take the mark of the beast and still be saved. And I just want to say to them, would you please read verse 10 out loud to yourself? And what you've just done is take it away from the word of God in, in so doing. And these guys are well-respected and they're spot on on many areas. Don't doubt um, their salvation. I have a problem with uh, MacArthur and his Calvinism, and he's a full five-point tulip Calvinist, so I have an issue with that. Um, but I also have an issue with him because he undoes this. This is meant to be a warning. It's meant to scare you. This is, this is meant to say, be afraid, be very afraid. Good place for an amen. And it's one of those Bible studies we're having this morning that uh, um, the reality and the consequences in Ezekiel's time, if you didn't have that mark, you were taken out. And that, that was the consequences uh, there. Now, um, you should be right there in chapter 13, verses 15 through 18. This is... This is the one that everybody is um, aware of. Verse 15, 
Uh, he was granted this would be the um, false prophet. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast would both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Ezekiel had an image of jealousy. Here, the Antichrist has his own image. And it caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one can buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, both in Greek and in Hebrew, there are numbers given um, that have a numerical value. Um, I personally hold the opinion that when the Antichrist is revealed, that in the Hebrew or the Greek, it will add up to 666. Um, We have the technology today. We have a global economic system that will exist. This was unthinkable in the days of the early church, yet today globalists in, in every level of government are seeking to unite the world to solve the current economic failings. Connecting the world monetarily is crucial to their goal, and the Bible says that one man will see to it that no one buys or sells without pledging allegiance, first of all, to him spiritually. Everyone has heard of 666, but only in our time has the technology existed to actually make it a reality. I mean, you scan your card how many times a day? And the technology is instantaneous. I can buy gas, go home, go online, log in, and see that my transaction is already in my account. It happens at the speed of light. The nature of the mark, since the mark of the beast is not merely a vehicle for buying and selling, but actually seals a soul for all eternity, it's worth looking at how exactly this could happen with simply computer digits. Satan is a master counterfeit. And since we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which seals us from heaven, uh, what seals people for hell? What What if by taking the mark, people receive Satan in some way or form in a counterfeit salvation. Consider this. The technology exists today to put the DNA of any person in the form of a cellular data into a chip-type medium, which would make that the mark of the beast a far more sinister event than merely facilitating economic transactions. In effect, it would be sealing souls irrevocably uh, for eternity with Satan as his master. I realize that's a little out there, that's a hypo, sort of a hypothetical thought, but we have the technology actually to do this. All right, from Genesis to Revelation. This morning's study was talking about taking the mark, but that's not how I want to close this morning. I want to close by having you turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, if we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. 
they were known before they got the name Christians, people of the way. But they, they took on the name Christian because the Christians in, in Antioch were loving each other the same way that Jesus loved his disciples. They were servants. Jesus said, I'm gonna give you an example. I'm gonna get down, I'm gonna wash your feet. And I want you to do the same. He says, in the same manner, if I'm your master and I've served you, then that's the mentality that I want you to have to your other brothers and sisters in Christ. You're a marked person. Some people are more um, noticeable than others because they have these fish on the back of their cars. I don't put one on there because sometimes I always don't do the speed limit. (laughs) And it's not the best witness in the world. There goes one of those fish. (laughs) Swimming upstream pretty fast. I want to close this morning with realizing that you guys are marked. You're a marked people. You're marked in a lot of ways. People know you're Christians. Amen. People are watching you. Amen. I went in a subway yesterday. Hey, I heard you're going to Israel. (laughs) This was a girl making the sandwiches. And I said, how do you know that? She says, well, one of my customers came in. I'm happy I'm going to Israel. (laughs) And um, actually, she's an old friend. I don't even have to tell her what I want. It's uh, six-inch roast beef on white, and she knows all the ingredients to put on. Now, having said that, it has nothing to do with the study. <laughs> Let's close with this. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let me go back and have you notice that it's not fruits. It's singular. It's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay? Put a period there. The love of God is given to us in 1 Corinthians 13, but the attributes of Christian love is joy. It's peace, it's long-suffering, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's being gentle, it's having self-control. Against such there are no laws. And those who are Christ's, all right, the sign of the cross, our mark, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the spirit, in other words, if we're sealed in the spirit, then let us also walk in the spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. I'm gonna add to the list. The list is good. What should be added to the list of a Christian, that there's a time to be happy. There's a time to dance. But there's also a time to weep, and there's also a time to mourn. So in our study this morning, I want want to balance it out. The Bible teaches both. And um, in closing, didn't I say in closing once already? But it wouldn't be me if I said it only one time. Let's go back to our text and read again a man of God whose name was Ezekiel, who was a prophet. And when he saw what was happening in his country, we should be marked when we go through a hard time and you're handling it well and you're not all bent out of shape. People are watching. How come you're not all bent out of shape? Well, my Bible says that my God is actually working everything out for good in my life, and I actually believe that. So yeah, I can't figure out really what's going on right now, but he promised me that he's got it under control. 
And somehow, some way, he's working it to my good. That's why I'm not bent out of shape. Here, though, the heart and main point as we make our way through Ezekiel is that it had gotten so bad. The Lord says, I want you to mark the guys that are grieving over this, that cry over this, that sigh over this, and leave them alone. And so he said, I was left alone. And um, he's weeping when he sees the iniquity. He said, um, Lord, while they're killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and I cried out and I said, oh Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel? So there is a time to weep. There's a time for joy. And um, depending on the circumstances, the Bible says we're to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Amen. We had a baby shower here yesterday at the church. I asked how it went, and I just said, it was wonderful. <laughs> and so I rejoice with that. I had a brother that I watched grow up, Seth, who could have lost his family last night. That would have been a time to weep. Fortunately, the, wor- the Lord worked it out for good, and, and uh, dittos to the, the police department up there in UP for being Johnny on the spot and getting there really quick. So there's a time... Uh, for all things, a time to weep and a time to rejoice. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer this morning. Lord, as we make our way through your word, we stumble upon this chapter where it's extremely serious just how bad things had gotten in Jerusalem that the Lord picks up Ezekiel and he takes him there and he shows him. The worship of Tammuz, the worship of the sun, idols right in the, in the very courtyard of the Lord. And uh, we look at our own country, we see uh, the same departure. We see crime on the, on the rise and uh, uh, babies being aborted, things that should break our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us and and uh, show us the times that we need to be in tears and heartbroken over our nation. And then times, Lord, when a person gets saved or there's a new baby born, we can rejoice with them. But we certainly thank you for this book and your word that that does not change. And so bless your word to our hearts this morning. We now entrust the Holy Spirit to take it and plant it in us, and as a result, our faith in Jesus Christ would be even stronger. In your name we pray, amen.